When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Lance Scott Walker to discuss Houston's DJ Screw. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Lance Scott Walker to talk about his book, DJ Screw, A Life and Slow Revolution. Lance, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is um, very Texas, very close to our heart, very near and dear. Uh, DJ Screw, one of the Gen Xers from Texas who had the biggest impact on the musical world. But his career is a little different. Like, DJ Screw is fundamentally a remixer, really, rather than a producer. And his work was released on mixtapes that are technically bootlegs. Can you explain, like, just the basic who, what, when, where, and why of DJ Screw? How did he get his music to market? And what was he actually doing? Right. So DJ Screw started in, um, in the, in the mid-1980s in uh, Smithville, Texas. He, he grew up in Houston when he was a kid. And then moved back to Smithville, which is where his family is from. And uh, that was when the movie Breakin' came out, and he got interested in, in hip hop and DJing, and started pursuing DJing. And uh, then moved to Houston in 1986, and uh, started to meet some people, and started to get to exposed exposed to some new music and new styles. And um, over the course of the next five or six years, developed a style of um, slowing down records and uh, while he was making mixtapes and taking two copies of, of a record on uh, either turntable, playing one of them a little bit behind the other one, and then using his crossfader to chop back and forth between those records and repeat rhythms and repeat phrases, repeat words, 
anything that he was hearing that he kind of wanted to hear again. Um, and eventually these, these tapes uh, sort of evolved into, um, into freestyle sessions where local rappers or, or would-be rappers would come over to his house and he'd run instrumentals and they'd, they'd record um, freestyles. They'd just freestyle off the top of their head, whatever they were thinking. And um, he would record the sessions and then he would take them and he would slow them down on the cassette and uh, run off um, cassette tapes, copies of cassette tapes and sell them out of his house. And that's the that's the basic story of uh, of how his career got going. Um, you know, his he did a couple of, uh, of market albums. You know, he did a couple of label albums through over the years. But for the most part, his bread and butter was the mixtapes that he recorded in his own house. Which you know, he eventually opened a store and eventually started actually printing up the tapes. But for the most for the most part, during his career, the tapes were Maxell XL cassettes that uh that he ran off at his house and um that, that reflected and and also documented the and created the culture of uh, houston texas and there were a couple of other djs in the houston area that had been selling remix tapes before this but none of them were as big and established as screw later became so when he started selling mixtapes it was kind of like a people are really going to give me money for this and his friends had to kind of talk him into yeah, and you should charge this much. How much was he charging for a mixtape? Ten dollars. And and so you know, just for a, a a tape that he had made on a jam box at home. And it's interesting the way that this um, micro economy emerged in Houston because it emerged in similar ways in other cities in the U.S. around the same time. Memphis. Atlanta, New York, LA, all had um, mixtape DJs that were doing the same thing. You also had the same thing sort of in the techno and house scenes where DJs, uh, you know, that were that were running raves and stuff start making tapes and, and started in Chicago kind of early on. So it's interesting to me that how organically this emerged and the fact that he was so successful at this that he's literally got sort of drug dealer problems where he has shoeboxes full of cash. He's got police scrutiny. He's got the IRS um, all down on his neck. But the record companies actually came to look at DJ Screw as a promotional vehicle rather than as somebody that was bootlegging. Can you explain what the record companies thought of what he was doing and how they accommodated a relationship with DJ Screw and other mixtape makers? Well, it's a little bit of a gray area, but, you know, suffice to say that, you know, record companies could see, at least back then, you know, we had sound scan information that, you know, people were buying records at record stores and they would scan them. And so record companies had a pretty good, um, pretty good lead on where records were being sold, which records were being sold. And uh, Houston was a big market. So, you know, it, it's hard to argue with that. If you see that, that somebody has taken a market share away or if there's a market share that has been taken away, it's kind of easy to maybe point the finger and say, well, that DJ Screw is putting our songs on his tapes, and so nobody's buying our records. But really, it was the opposite, because, you know, DJ Screw's tapes were the first place that a lot of people heard certain music, new music, you know, that, that might be the first place that they heard it was on DJ Screw's tapes, and that might be, uh, and, and likely, and as was the case in, in many cases, the you know, Screws tapes led people to an artist. Okay, well, I first heard, you know, Ice Cube or Ice-T or whoever it was on one of DJ Screws tapes, and now I want to go buy one of his albums. 
you know, I mean, you, I'm sure you saw that time and time again. So the record companies, I think at first didn't like the idea that, um, that, you know, screw was making mixtapes that featured their songs on them. But, you know, with kind of the way that he was changing the music as he was recording it and, and creating something really new out of it, not just slapping people's songs on their tapes. Uh, and the fact that uh, it, it served as an introduction, like I was saying, for a lot of people, um, and they could see that the uh, the market share wasn't hurt in Houston because it's such a big hip-hop market. I think there was a certain point where the labels just kind of let it go, and in fact, some of them started sending him records. Like, no, no, by all means, send him your records. He'll put them on your, his tapes, and then people will hear them. And let's talk a little bit about Smithville and, and his origins. Like, People hear Smithville and they think country and this, you know, like what 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 can these kids know about hip hop? How was he getting his information about hip hop? What were the radio stations? What were the music stores that were hipping him to what was going on in the bigger world? Um, no record stores in uh, Smithville. Uh, there was a record store in LaGrange at one point. Um, and of course, they, you know, that Smithville is not too far from Austin. Um, but, uh, you know, he would they could in Smithville in the in the early 1980s, you could pick up uh, an independent uh, left of the dial radio station out of Austin. Um, the call letters of which are escaping me right now, but um, I think it's K A Z I. Yeah, it's K A Z I. That's exactly it. You're right. And uh, so he would listen to K A Z I. They would be able to pick up something there. They could pick up uh, on clear nights. They could pick up a radio station from Houston, which um, I, I always found surprising. But you know, the Houston, you know, has got big radio stations. They're big blowtorches, and so a lot of people can pick up that signal. Um, didn't have MTV. Um, there wasn't any, most of the local radio anywhere in the Hill country was just mostly playing country or maybe blues. Um, but, uh, screw knew a couple of older guys that, uh, that had records. And in fact, one who was a DJ, one who was a record collector and had a lot of equipment, but another one who was actually a DJ and who was actually going to Houston and buying records in Houston, which is of course where you could get uh, great hip hop records because there was already a scene going on there. So, it, the exposure didn't really so much come off of the radio in general, even though, you know, there's a couple shows that he could pick up here and there. Um, didn't have MTV or anything like that, but MTV in the early 1980s wasn't showing hip hop anyway. Um, so it was really sort of a patchwork of, of, you know, places that he was, he was getting hip hop records from. But I think maybe even more important was the fact that, you know, since DJing was his thing and he loved he loved the home he loved the mechanics of DJing. He loved the, the idea of being able to play records for people. He loved the idea of being able to kind of rethink how those records unrolled in time. Um, you know, the the fact was that the records that he had available to him were his mother's records, blues records, R and B records. And uh, these are some of the first records that he really got his hands on, was really able to play over and over again and kind of get to know and kind of get to know the grooves and how they worked and everything. And I think that's really important because, uh, it, it, you know, later on, if you, you go and listen to his, a lot of his uh, mixtapes and look at the freestyles, the, the sort of bed, the foundation, the beat that he used um, for a lot of um, tracks where people are freestyling are old R&B tracks. And um, I think that, that that musical education comes from his mother. And uh, I think that he, if he had had stacks and stacks of hip hop records to begin with, it would have been a sort of a different education. Doesn't that wouldn't, of course, it wouldn't take anything away from. But I'm just saying, I think that because of the fact that what he had available, which is his mother's records, uh, it sort of gave him a musical education, uh, sort of from a different angle. Um, and then by the time he was getting into Houston and there were more record shops all over the place, and he was able to get his hands on some hip hop, 
by then he really knew how to handle records and he kind of knew what he was listening for. All right, let's hear our first song. This is Hardcore Life by Triple Threat. This is a track DJ Screw actually produced. You best come equipped, a non-double limb, sort of gauge with that pistol grip. They say prevent violence, but what the fuck did them hoes know? Cause fool with how they got you won't survive in the ghetto. Yup, this life that I live is far away from a barrel to never know heaven on earth because my hood's like a living hell. Niggas I hear, don't give a damn cause we bored now. So if you wanna go, come along, ho, and get you something. Full of them lunatics and niggas pull triggers quick. Fiends be fiending and many hoes be like sucking dick. Cause money's the key and yeah, I'm out for a profit. Cause this is my dope and my block, so how you can't stop it. We guess niggas need to stay home with the- And that was Hardcore Life by Triple Threat. And so tell us, um, for the benefit of those who don't technically understand the difference, what's the difference between producing a track like he did for Triple Threat and what he normally did when he would remix tracks? Well, when Screw was me remixing tracks, he was just doing so with the records. That was that was his main tool that he was using was the, was the the records that had already been produced. In some cases, he might have uh, an instrumental, and uh, in, in many cases, he would have an instrumental or the and, and or the acapella um, with which to work. And he could he could layer those over different songs and kind of mash them up and and you know kind of really rethink the the linear arrangements of the songs so that's what he was doing when he was mixing he was taking pre-existing tracks in in a more or less finished form and 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 rethinking them but when he was producing that was when he was uh actually using you know musical instruments you know drum machines and keyboards and and of course the turntables you know scratching is is, is a you know the turntables as a as a musical instrument uh so there's there's your difference right there is that um you know, he was actually creating music from um, out of nothing when uh, when he was producing, like as he as he did with Triple Threat, which is a very early project that he did, 1991, 1992 era. And uh, before he was really known for his mixtapes is, is when that one uh, came out. And uh, so it's a different approach. You know, it's a different uh, he with the mixtapes he's creating, but uh, <clears throat> he's creating from something that's already been released. Whereas when he was producing, he was creating from scratch. All right. I think that should should satisfy the listeners. And there's a couple of people that he <clears throat> came across when he was pretty young in Houston that um, were DJs that themselves put out some slowed down tracks. And that's DJ Screw's big, you know, that's what he's most famous for. When, when you see a CD in Houston to this day that says it's screwed and chopped, that means it's slowed down and mixed up. But tell us a little bit about Daryl Scott and Steve Fournier and what they were doing, how they helped kickstart the hip hop scene in Houston and, and how they influenced DJ Screw and his taste for slowing down tracks. Well, I think out of the two, Daryl Scott would be the one who more so influenced uh, DJ Screw. I don't believe that Screw and Fournier knew each other or really overlapped in their orbits. It was kind of a different scene. Steve Fournier was very important to the Houston scene, I should say. They just they're kind of from different eras. Uh although I do believe that Screw may have subscribed to Steve Fournier's uh, record pool. I might be wrong on that, but um anyway, so Steve, Steve Fournier was a club DJ and a promoter who um was the really the pioneer of the a club called the Rhinestone Wrangler, which is where all the early Houston rappers were freestyling and, you know, 
competing against one another in battle rap contests in a club setting. And a lot of that was going on in the neighborhoods and in the schools and in the streets. But, uh, you know, that was the first place in Houston where there was a club where people could go to and actually freestyle battle rap against one another. Uh, but Daryl Scott was a much more profound influence on DJ screw because Daryl Scott was a, a mixtape DJ and DJ and a live DJ, a club DJ who got his start in the uh, mid late 1970s um, in clubs as a really young man, like, you know, just barely a teenager um, was in the clubs. And uh, then in the early 1980s, and he was playing funk and R&B and kind of party and some disco and that sort of thing, proto hip hop, really. And then in the early 1980s, uh, as hip hop records start coming out, Daryl Scott uh, starts, you know, seamlessly, you know, folding those into what he was doing. And Steve Fournier also in that same era, I got to say, was was one who was bringing hip hop records to the clubs and, and in a lot of cases clubs where they didn't really want to hear hip-hop or, or the club owners didn't want to hear hip-hop anyway but he fought to to get it in there uh, but daryl scott was uh, was making mixtapes and uh, going to a you know big park in houston on the south side where everybody sort of congregates on sundays and he you know he couldn't run off enough cassettes he you know he'd sell out of anything he brought with him because everybody loved his mixtapes those were the hottest in town because he was a great track selector and he was a great mixer and um, you know, and, 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 and people just loved what he, what it was that he did. He was an, he was an icon, uh, for a lot of people. He was a hero for a lot of people. And there was no better example of that than, you know, in late 1984 when, uh, you know, he opened his own record store in Houston, Blast Records and Tapes. And, you know, so this is a young black man opening his own business that's, uh, music oriented, music based after he had, you know, already built up goodwill and, and showed, uh, <clears throat> his hard work within the community. So it was really inspiring for a lot of people. Um, you know, when Daryl Scott opened that, that record store, Blast Records and Tapes. And uh, then in the in the following years, he kept releasing tapes. He, he sold his mixtapes out of his record store along with other, you know, official uh, releases that were coming out. And uh, on a, some of his mixtapes in the late 1980s, he, uh, he slowed down some songs. And um, he... Um, he was doing what he was calling doubling, which is the same kind of idea of what Screw was doing with chopping. He was doing that on some of his cassettes, um, not together and not wholesale. It wasn't really his whole thing by any stretch. It was really just something he sort of did, a, you know, in a few different spots. Um, but it was a big influence on Screw because Screw idolized Daryl Scott because everybody in Houston idolized Daryl Scott. So when those two met in the late 1980s, early 1990s, you know, it was a big deal for Screw because he had somebody who he could really talk to about technique and learn from. And, uh, you know, Daryl Scott was, a you know, really a generation older than Screw and um, and was on his way to, you know, he was already mentoring young people in the neighborhood and was on his way to the ministry and, um, you know, really, really, you know, looking out for the younger generation and wanting to inspire them. And it worked very much so in the case of DJ Screw because, uh, you know, he started taking some of those techniques that he had heard from Daryl Scott and uh, and running off in another direction with them really very much inspired. Um, and also alongside another young DJ in Houston named Michael Price, who, you know, was tragically murdered in 1993, but nevertheless was a, a, a big part of, uh, screws, you know, burgeoning enthusiasm for slowing music down and 
and um, and really kind of chewing on it and getting to really understand what music was about. You know, they came from different angles on that, but they were they were very much both inspired by and and mentored by Daryl Scott. So Daryl Scott remains an incredibly important figure uh, in Houston to this day. He's uh, you know he retired for a long time, but in this in this last year he's come out of retirement and done a couple of slowed and chopped mixes um, for uh, for a couple of local artists. So it's really that's interesting awesome. to see that that come all the way back around. Yeah, that's great. And let's hear our next track. This is DJ Screw, Pimp the Pen, featuring Lil Kiki. I'm draped up and dripped out, know what I'm talking about. Three in the morning, getting a get out the stash spot. Fire up a fence, we turning on the bug lights. Hand on the wood grain, ass on the tight white. Showing naked ass in the great state of Texas. Home of the player, so it never be no flexes. So long we've been waiting, never ever hating. In Houston we elbows and Cali they dating. So 1996, you hoes better duck. Because the world gon' drip candy and be all screwed up. Just pop in the... And that was Pimp the Pen from DJ Screw featuring Lil Kiki. And so how did DJ Screw establish himself once he came down to Houston... I mean, obviously, a lot of kids wanted to be DJs. He didn't have the best equipment or anything. How did he get established as a DJ and get in a position where people would want to buy his mixtapes? He met the right people. And, uh, and one of the ways that he met the right people was he moved into the right apartment complex with his father. And, um, you know, in, in 1989, 88, 89, somewhere in there, uh, he and his father moved to the Quail Meadows apartment complex on on Telephone Road in Houston. And... There were um, and there were a lot of people in that complex. There were hundreds, hundreds of units, and and you know probably thousands of people living in that complex. It's a huge complex. It stretched several blocks down Telephone Road, um, and it was a place where a lot of people went to buy drugs. So there was a lot of traffic coming in and out of there. And um, and Screw was you know had been working on his craft really for years by then, um, <clears throat> and he would work on his craft there in the apartment. The <clears throat> the difference is. At this point now, what he was doing was something that people could kind of walk by his apartment and hear that there was something going on in there. Whereas, you know, prior to that, he lived in a, a neighborhood that wasn't far away, uh, but he lived in a neighborhood, you know, some many streets over where there would have been there would have been no foot traffic coming by to to hear what he was doing. So, as group spent more and more time in the the new apartment complex where they'd moved, he got to meet more and more people. Um, people got turned on to what he was doing. And uh, it was one of his um, one of his neighbors there who became one of his friends who was the first one to say, "Hey, I'd like to buy one of those mixtapes that you're making." And that's what that's what started that part of it. So, really, it was a very organic process where you know local um, local not necessarily artists, um, but just local hip hop enthusiasts. Um, some of them who may have you know also been um, you know dealing some crack cocaine or some weed and, and, and had lots of people who were coming to see them. Uh, once screw started selling those tapes, some of those uh, drug dealers started actually promoting the tapes to, Hey, while you're here, you should go over to, you know, DJ screws apartment and get yourself a tape made. So that was one of the ways that it started. Um, an, another way that it's, you know, that he really started getting his work out there was because of his relationship um, with a, another DJ, Andrew Hatton, DJ chill. Uh, who he also he met at Sterling High School and uh, who by at least by 1990 1991 was uh, getting Screw involved in a lot of DJ gigs. They you know 
but they they both kind of had half a set of equipment and when they put their stuff together they had one pretty good set of equipment and um dj chill was very adept at getting gigs he was adept at getting gigs at parties or at schools or whatever it might be and eventually at clubs um but he took screw along with him and as a matter of fact dj chill the kind of personality he is he's a great dj but he's also a great host and so when he took screw with him he'd just let screw dj all night and he'd just take the microphone he'd just MC and kind of organize the parties but so you know there were a couple different wheels turning in the early 1990s that um that got screws tapes out there for one um but by the traffic that was coming through the quail meadows apartment complex and that really helped to promote his tapes all along around the south side but the other part of it was uh, in working with dj chill because it got screw out into the clubs and it turned screw into a professional dj is what it did you know at, at a point long before he was actually going to sort of um, you know, people talk about DJ Screw being a hermit. I mean, there's a, there's some truth to that, not completely, because he did get out and, and play gigs. But suffice to say that in the in the early years, he got out and played a lot of gigs, and uh, it made him very organized and very. It made him it got him to a point where he knew his equipment very well, and uh, and it also really kind of upped his game as it went with um, working with the people around him. You know, working with the with the, the sound people in the clubs, or the promoters in the clubs, or the club owners, that sort of thing, and and also you know playing to an audience because that was a new thing for DJ Screw. So there's really a lot of wheels that were turning in those early years that were really super important in shaping um, how he was going to move forward. And there's two terms that I'd like you to get explained to the audience that that are very important for Houston hip-hop in this period. And I'm talking about slabs, and I'm talking about lean. What are slabs, and what is lean, and how did this create this car hip-hop culture uh, that blossomed and created, you know, made DJ Screw such a big thing in Houston? Well, both of them have roots that go way back, way, way before DJ Screw. Um, You know, people were customizing... uh, cars uh in houston you know from as as far back as you can uh as you as far back as you can dream but i would say that uh, as hip hip hip-hop culture came alive in uh, around the world as it were in the in the really in the mid 80s you know 1984 85 is when we're seeing hip-hop movies come out and that's really what awakened a lot of people to to what was going on and and uh with the new genre and um you know people outside of new york you know, got to got to hear what was going on, and you know, really got a taste of of all that. So, um, the slab is uh, the idea behind the slab is that it's a it's an old car. Um, usually, in a lot of cases, sort of a long body car. It can could be any kind of car, but um, sort of sort of long body Cadillacs and um, you know older uh, models from the 70s that had maybe kind of seen better days, but um, but the body, the, the foundation of the car, the foundation, there you go, that's the slab. That's the relationship between the term right there, the slab, as in like, okay, I'm going to take this slab and build it up from there. So the slab, as it were, is like basically a car that, um, you know, it, like I said, has seen better days, but uh, is very functional and can be customized and built kind of from the ground up. So what does that mean? That means, you know, body work. That means a new coat of paint and specifically in Houston, what's called candy paint, which is. Uh, paint with a metallic flakes mixed into it so that it looks wet so it shines in a way that uh, regular car paint doesn't Uh, it's more expensive and it's uh, a 
you know, it's a lot more difficult to, uh, to apply correctly. You know, there are people in Houston who specialize in it. Um, uh, Ike over in, uh, on the East end in particular, uh, you'll hear, hear his name pop up in, in lyrics, you know, you got my car sprayed by Ike, which is in want to be a baller. So uh, the slab in, in, and it's not just the paint, you know, there's, uh, there's the rims, there's the, the spoke rims that go on there. There's the custom, um, you know, headrests and television sets put into cars now. That's probably not so much the case in the in the eighties and early nineties, but um, you know, all the insides done and, and custom leather and custom colored leather. Um, so it's really a matter of taking the old car and bringing it, um, not just bringing it back, but bringing it into uh, in, an innovative uh, approach to to thinking about how you want to present that car and. Sometimes there'll be a pop, you know, trunk that will pop up and some neon inside of there and a, a fifth wheel on that trunk. Uh, there's all, you know, everybody kind of has their own style. So, so that style was was really was already happening in the in the uh, in the early '80s and, and mid '80s. And I, and I think, you know, like I said, there were customizers around town who really specialized in in uh, in, in bringing people's sort of dreams to to fruition as it can as it preferred to their to their vehicles so that continued to grow over the years um lean was um is is codeine promethazine um a recreational codeine promethazine which um you know maybe not necessarily in the form of codeine promethazine but had been recreationally the cough syrup had been recreationally consumed in houston for decades leading up to that people were drinking it with beer or wine coolers and you know, I'd say late 80s, early 90s is when uh, kind of, you know, our generation, Generation X, started uh, drinking it with uh, soda water and ice. And, you know, I think people started throwing Jolly Ranchers in there at some point. Um, so these are two things that, um, you know, that were talked about on Screws Tapes as people were freestyling. These are things that they, they talked about, but they were things that um, were in place already. There were things there were things that were happening in Houston and Screws Tapes just made those those things that much more popular why they called um codeine promethazine lean is because when you drink it it's sort of a you know it's definitely an intoxicating effect and it's uh you know people say it kind of makes you lean over kind of slows time down for you and everything and so people make that connotation people make that connection um to screws music through lean because they say well if you're if you're on lean and, and you listen to screws music then you'll totally get it um of course, there's truth to that, but you don't have to take drugs to to enjoy DJ Screw's music. It's right there, you know, right there in the music. Yeah, absolutely. And let's take a quick uh, break from our and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, I want to ask you about um, the the screwed up click and the rappers that Screw assembled around him to freestyle on his tapes. And so, when Screw first started making mixtapes, he would have basically just the song sometimes slowed down chopped a little bit and then he started adding shout outs and he would let people pay a little extra and they could they could get a shout out to their hood um paving a little more extra and they could personally shout out how did that evolve into uh rappers like fat pat and big hawk and little kiki and esg and others freestyling on the screw tapes how did how did this crew come together and who was the first and who were some of the most important rappers he worked with well uh, there, you're right that there were little flashes of that uh, over the years, um, the shout outs. And, uh, you know, of course, he was building up his techniques over the years. Um, but really, when we get to the most important pivot point, really, 
is uh, at the end of 1993, beginning of 1994, when Screw moved out of the apartment that he shared with his father, which, you know, in, in which he was um, really beholden to his father's schedule, his father's rules, his, his father's um, moods, you know, do, do, you know, can, can you come over? Can, can people come over? Can you come buy a tape? Can you come in? Can you get on the microphone? You know, all that was very limited when he lived with his father. But at the end of 1993, he and his girlfriend, Nikki, moved into a house. In, um, in a neighborhood called Golf Crest on the sort of the east end of the south side. And um, that's where things really changed because there were people that he knew. He knew Fat Pat. You know, he'd, he'd, um, he'd, he knew ESG. You know, there were people that he knew in the scene. Uh, he knew C-Note from the Botany Boys. You know, there's plenty of people that he knew. But once he got his own house and he had no rules as to, to when people could come over there, that's when the freestyle started happening. That's when that's when he was able to start really letting the, the music roll and, and letting people take that microphone and, and letting that magic sort of naturally come out. Um, I don't know if that was necessarily planned or if it was more so just that uh, the personalities that were coming out on the tapes sort of cleared that room for themselves. Uh, the first one to really freestyle on a tape, there are plenty of people who did shout outs over the year, but you know, when we go back through the history of the first one um, noted to have freestyled on a tape uh, was the rapper C-Note from the group Bonnie Boys. Um, and once Fat Pat, who was a, a neighborhood superstar and a neighborhood um, you know, icon, really, because he was such a, a gigantic personality and he was so funny. And he, you know, he was really the most kind of, before he was really even an artist, he was the most complete artist of any of them. He was just a ready-made rock star. He was he was a gigantic dude. He was really loud and really confident. He saw everybody in the room and really kind of took everybody in and, and, and kind of sucked all the attention out of every room. So <clears throat> really, you know, once once Screw had Fat Pat over to the house and Fat Pat, once, once Fat Pat heard that C-Note had freestyled on the tape, he couldn't get over there fast enough. And, um, and then fat, once Fat Pat started freestyling on Screw tapes, he really set the tone for what everybody else was going to end up doing. You know, he really kind of set the tone of like, this is what you can do on one of these tapes. This is the way that you can express yourself. Um, which in turn was also what Screw wanted. You know, Screw wanted to provide a platform for people. And all of this is kind of, you know, they're inventing all of this sort of on the fly. I mean, this isn't like some grand plan where they sat down and sketched it out, nor is it anything that they uh, really had a, a template uh, from which to work. You know, nobody had, had had done this prior, but I think that the personalities and the um, the openness of Screw and the way that that Screw um, really wanted to see people shine and 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 see people kind of come alive and express themselves, I think all of that just provided a, a perfect uh, situation for for these things to take off. So early on, you've got Fat Pat, you've got his brother Hawk, who came in a little bit later. He's he's the older brother, but he he started rapping a little bit later. Uh, you got ESG, um, who came over from Louisiana and, and was already rapping, freestyling in Louisiana, and really brought another element of that to to Houston. Um, and then pretty early on, once Screw moves into the to the house in Golfcrest, you get Little Kiki and the Herschel Wood Hardheads. And you know, in the coming years, you meet Big Mo and he comes in singing. And you got Big Pokey, and so you got sort of a starting five or six of the of the screwed up clique that uh, that all. They're they're all for the, for the most part from different neighborhoods, different parts of town. They kind of represent different things. They all have different styles, but uh, 
but they're all picking up on the rhythms of, of DJ Screw and the, the sort of, you know, the atmosphere that Screw is making available for them to uh, to to do what it is that they want to do and the, the way that Screw sort of quietly egged them on and gave them room to, to be themselves. So, you know, as the years uh, go on, you know, you, you, you've also, you've got people who were in Screw's life really early from, you know, from high school and from even before that when he was in Smithfield, his cousin Shorty Mack, you know, uh, the guy that he called his little brother, you know, Al D, who he met in high school and who was a very, very important musical partner for him, you know, um, these people from his past were, were still in his present at that point, and they became parts of the screwed up click. And you could you could almost argue that they were maybe more original screwed up click in the sense that, uh, you know, he um, the first time that he ever talked about that term was was around you know those guys in particular, Al D and, and Shorty Mack and and his cousin um, Act from from also from from Smithville. You know, so again, you got a whole different set of wheels turning that that are uh, that are kind of creating the legacy of DJ Screw and, and opening up a format, as it were, even though it was a very open format, but a format for for all these artists to come in and express themselves. And let's put it in context. What was the hip hop scene in Houston when D- DJ Screw is starting to take off in these mixtapes, particularly Rap-A-Lot Records and UGK out of Port Arthur? How did he interact with those forces? What were the neighborhood distinctions and sort of the regional rivalries? And and how did they sort of tip the hat, I'm thinking of UGK in particular, to Screw and acknowledge his stylistic innovations as well? Yeah, well, his, his relationship with, with Rap-A-Lot was what I would say was much more uh, kind of from afar. Um, than his relationship with UGK. I mean, one of the biggest hip hop hip hop groups in the world uh, at that point in the early uh, 1990s was the Ghetto Boys. You know, they were they were going global. They had you know they had songs everywhere. They had songs in movies. They had you know they had hits on the charts. So they, you had that happening from uh, the rap a lot perspective, and that had been going on really by the time DJ Screw's tapes started really getting out there. You know, the rap a lot scene had been around for almost a decade. Um, but, uh, he didn't really mix it up with many people from Rap-A-Lot. Big Mello, uh, who's a Rap-A-Lot artist, did befriend Screw and, and did come over to his house. And I don't think was on any tapes, but, um, but was it, you know, definitely f- friends with Screw and, um, you know, had they both lived, I'm sure there would have been some collaborations, you know, in the, in the future. Um, but Screw's relationship with UGK was, which was much closer because, you know, it was really DJ Screw who helped to break UGK in Houston um, by, you know, their their earliest release, Tell Me Something Good. You know, when he got a hold of that record as, as just a 12 inch, you know, in the in 1992 and Screw was still in the clubs. He was out, you know, DJing in the clubs and um, playing parties and, and that sort of thing. And um, and so the UGK record, those early UGK records were ones that uh, he held very uh, close to the heart because it was, you know, they, they were coming up at the same time. Um, so, you know, his, his relationship with UGK was, was close and, and got closer over the years, especially with Pimp C. He was very close to Pimp C and um, so much so, and, and, you know, and, and UGK really identified, um, they were from, they were from Port Arthur, but they moved to Houston in the early nineties and they really identified with, with what screw was doing even though their sound was, was different than what he was doing. Um, you know, it was still funky and it was still coming from kind of a country place, you know, and UGK always described them, their music as, you know, country rap. And, 
you know, Screw was also from the country. So there was there, there was a lot of, you know, th- there were a lot of things that brought them together. Um, but I think maybe none more so than at the point where, you know, um, UGK is releasing their album Riding Dirty. You know, five years after that Screw broke that original single, they released their album Riding Dirty. And in order to celebrate it, they came over to Screw's house and, and made a screw tape. And, and used the beats from their record and freestyled over those beats and changed the lyrics and and invited a young rapper named Matt Grace, uh, who was then known as Dat Boy Grace, um, passed away uh, five years ago this week, actually. Um, but uh, they brought him over and, and involved him and, and, and really uh, became a, a, a more and more a part of what Screw was doing. And artists that were going over Screw's house and getting on the tapes were also on UGK records. and um, So there was a lot of mixing together on that uh on that front and uh ugk was very fond of screw and screw was very fond of ugk and um and i think really also in a lot of ways you know ugk really brought the city together because you gotta think about the fact that like the north side of houston and the south side of houston in the 1990s um really you know you didn't really cross those boundaries it was um you know sort of a soap opera slash wrestling slash you know politics you know everybody kind of took sides and nobody really knew why. Um, but, um, but, you know, I think UGK were really instrumental in, in, uh, in, in getting people up over that. And I think screw was too, because screw, uh, didn't suffer fools and he didn't suffer people who didn't, uh, get along, you know, in his house. If you two don't get along, you got to get along in here. You got to both leave. And, uh, you know, so, you know, there were, there were a lot of, um, the what ways that they, that they can, he connected with UGK. And I think that really, that, that just continued on the entire time that, that uh, Screw was alive. Well, let's hear our next track. This is DJ Screw's Southside Roll On Choppers featuring Big Mo and Fat Pat. That was DJ Screw's Southside Roll On Choppers featuring Big Mo and Fat Pat. And let's talk about Screw's actual commercially released records with uh, Russell Washington of Big Time Records. And the two of them actually went way back. They they had, their parents had dated early on. How did Screw mm-hmm. and Russell Washington come together, though, as a business proposition? And how did they make um, that three in the morning record and why was volume two released and volume one was never officially released well um russell washington contracted screw to to make a mix of um, all local artists that were on big time records and um that became the album all screwed up and he basically said you know he made him a deal here mix the record and i'll pay you in cash and i'll pay you some points and um you know, take these these local records and uh, and and make a compilation album out of them. Um, and Screw did that. You know, he got everything he needed on vinyl, and um, he you know he went into the studio and he he made an actual studio record, which is a different thing for him because most of what he was doing was recording onto a four track or an eight track uh, cassette recorder and um, and then mixing down from cassette to another cassette 
So you're losing generations of sound as you go. And um, so for him to get in the studio and actually record everything onto two inch tape and it comes out really sharp and he's, you know, he's got an, okay, well, I didn't quite get that mix right. Okay, well, let's punch it back in, you know, gives him an opportunity to go back in and do that. So that was a really different thing for him. Um, <clears throat> All Screwed Up did well. It did well locally. It did well regionally. Uh, you know, R Russell Washington with Big Time Records was really pushing to try to get um, his records out there and uh, and make a statement. And, um, you know, 1995 rolls around and he approaches Screw about, uh, about doing another record that um, is really you know, his own where he can select the tracks and, and, um, and make his own mix and they'll release it as a studio album. So screw goes in to the studio and he does this and he comes back to the label. And he says, here it is. And, um, you know, le legal folks start looking at it and go, Oh my God, you know, this is a nightmare. You've got LL Cool J songs on here. You've got, you know, there's this stuff that we could never possibly clear. It's, you know, to, in order to clear the samples, in order to clear the usage of the material, it would cost so much money either in legal fees or in, you know, the fee that you would have to pay to the songwriter. <clears throat> there was just no way that they could clear it. So um, what screw did was to go back in and make a, um, a, a version of this record that he'd been really dreaming up for years called three in the morning, where he had some screw tape versions of it that, that he'd thought up. And there were a few songs that, in particular that he really wanted to have on that mix that, that, that survive on every version of it. And um, so he had to go back in and make a, a second version of it. And it, it took him forever to do it because the other thing is that he went into the studio and, and worked on four turntables um, because he had that many ideas for, for what it was he was going to do and how he wanted to layer things over. So that's how there ended up being two mixes. Um, the part two was the one that was actually cleared and actually could be released um, commercially. And part one uh, had no clearance on it and couldn't be released commercially. And I think was only just sort of pressed up sort of off to the side. And some of those were released uh, just to, to local record stores because people wanted them so bad. Um, but they did, they were never, you know, nationally dis distributed because um, they just couldn't be cleared. So, so that was how that, that, that happened. Screw, screw and Russell Washington did, did go back very far. Um, but um, it was Russell Washington who really approached him and so, you know, I'd, I'd like you to mix a record um, using, you know, big time artists and then, you know, came back to him again and said, you know, here's, um, you know, do a, do a record of your own. So there's a couple different versions of that, but um, that's what makes Three in the Morning such an interesting um, project of Screws along the way, because he really had um, ideas of what he wanted to do with it. And he really wanted to make it right and uh, took a lot of opportunities to do so. And dare I say, in the end, he got it right. Yeah, I, I would say it's held up. And now, if you could tell us a couple stories about sort of the peak of Screw's local fame, because there's just some amazing anecdotes of, you know, like major labels are interested in, in trying to meet with them, and, you know, Screw's trying to get to this meeting, breakfast meeting at a restaurant, and people are stopping him in the parking lot over and over again, and he has to go back to his trunk and sell more tapes. There's even a kid who... Uh, is dying of cancer and, and his dying wish is he wants to make a screw tape. Tell us a little bit about that and how screw became, you know, a local legend and how that even kind of forced him to be on the run where he had to move locations and set up a real record store because of the unwanted attention from the police who are noticing the yeah. people that yeah, are yeah, we're talking, Yeah. We're talking like, you know, I mean, as far as him being out there and, um, 
sort of exposed to everything that's going on. You know, we're talking leading up to, you know, about the middle end of 1998. You know, he had the house in uh, in Golfcrest uh, for all those years. People would come to his house to buy the tapes, and you know, they would they started kind of coming at all hours because people knew where he lived and where he could get the tapes. He had to put up a gate around his porch so that people couldn't just knock on his door. Um, and then he had to start setting hours like, okay, you can come from seven to 8 PM on these nights. And then he'd change the times a little bit here and there, but for the most part, they stayed pretty consistent. Um, and people would drive over to his neighborhood and line up, they'd park outside of his house and wait. And then when he'd call somebody up, they'd run up there and they'd just, you know, Here, here's some money, give me some fat pat or whatever it was. I mean, maybe they had something in particular that they wanted, you know, there, there was no whiteboard, uh, no dry erase board that, that listed all the cassettes back then. You know, it wasn't that once, once he opened the shop, there was, but, um, you know, people just kind of had to go with whatever they could get and he would just run off tapes as quickly as he could. But that was dangerous because um, he was dealing in cash and, um, you know, kept money in shoeboxes or wherever, you know, kept it hidden. And, um, you know, people knew where he lived and would come over his house every day and could look right into his living room whenever he was there at the, you know, at the gate, taking money and handing tapes over. Um, so it got to the point where, you know, he felt like, you know, I have to open a shop. You know, I have to, I have to get a storefront, you know, because the police kicked his door in a couple of times thinking that he was selling drugs. Um, they didn't find anything. They found no drugs. They just found cassettes, smashed a bunch of cassettes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so he thought, you know, I, I got to get out of here. I got to, um, I got to go legit. I got to build a storefront. And um, so he, he found a, a space in, um, um, in on Cullen Boulevard, right in between South South Park and Sunnyside. You know, two two South Side neighborhoods in Houston, and uh, and opened up his shop in in February 1998. And that's when, uh, you know, he started charging tax and uh, kind of came in from the cold as far as all that goes. And and people, you know, had somewhere that people had somewhere that they could go, you know. You know, more more frequently than seven to eight p.m. on a Tuesday night or whatever it may have been, you know. So, yeah, the fame was was definitely catching up to him in the sense that um, you know there were a lot of times that he kind of couldn't go somewhere without being recognized, and people didn't, you know, his face wasn't on the on any of his albums, so you didn't necessarily know what DJ Screw looked like unless you knew, unless you'd been to his house. But you know, there were stories that people told me about being in the mall and it, you know talking to him and mentioned his name and then everybody realizes oh that's dj screw and you know he gets mobbed and um so of course he enjoyed the love and he loved that his music was touching people reaching people um but you, you know you also just never really know who's out there and uh you know so i think in order for his safety you know he, he finally um, moved his operation into a um into an actual storefront and then got himself a house a little bit outside of the city to kind of to kind of get away from it all. So, I mean, I guess you could say his peak is as far as him being sort of out in, in, in the public would probably be around 97, 98. Um, but, um, but I think that the work that he was doing in his last couple of years was going to lead him to a, a whole different level of, of fame and, and notoriety that would have really extended his reach much more profoundly around the world. And let's hear our last track. This is Steady Bala from DJ Screw.
eight o'clock, crime evening, and it's time to ball. My limo drive away so tight, so there's no time to stall. And I'll be dressed to impress, bag is still shining. Twenty more cabs around my neck, filled up with diamonds. Leaving the whole club blinded, that's the way it gotta be, bros, teaching and fever. And that was Steady Ballin' from DJ Screw. And so let's talk about his final years. There were two things, I think, going on uh, that I'd like to cover. One is the he's starting to get national attention, wins a national DJ award. He's covered in The Source and other magazines. And at the same time, tragedy is striking right and left. Fat Pat is murdered, and DJ Screw's own health goes south in a big way. Talk about those last couple of years and what Screw managed to get done and what he was on the verge of doing when he passed. Yeah. I mean, you know, people look at his, his output in the last couple of years and, you know, they say, okay, well, he wasn't uh, making as many cassettes then he wasn't doing as many tapes. He wasn't doing as many mixes. Um, And that's true. Uh, He wasn't releasing as many. Um, But, uh, but I think he was really making a lot of plans um, for how he would really approach things in the new millennium. And, you know, how he would kind of change up his business and adapt to the times and adapt to, to what was going on. So, you know, uh, it's hard not to look at it as a dark period because we also know that there were plenty of drugs around and that, um, you know, this is also a point where, um, you know, he probably didn't, he didn't have as many people coming around. So, um, there was more time, you know, maybe him working alone and, um, you know, experimenting, musically and trying some different things working hard still like he always did but um you know maybe spending more time alone and um and and doing some planning and thinking about what he wanted to do with his future he wanted to open a studio you know he wanted to open a mail order service and uh and make his records available on the internet you know i think he probably would have pivoted to cds at some point you know cds were not that long back then you know the original you know cds or I think we're at 70 minutes something like that. And that's, that's nowhere near as long as a screw tape. So, you know, he didn't release his stuff on CD cause it just wasn't long enough. You know, he wanted all that space to be able to, to, to really have his recordings fleshed out. Um, so, you know, there's tendency for people to think about those last couple of years as like these kind of dark spiraling years and maybe health wise, you could think about it that way because he also, you know, he didn't sleep, he didn't eat well, you know, he didn't exercise. And, you know, he had an enlarged heart. I mean, there's a lot of things, you know, he did smoke PCP. There was some codeine involved, you know, um, there's a tendency for some people to look at those as dark years, but I, I kind of think of them as a, you know, those years of, of transition that was to come that just never got to arrive because I think that, you know, I, I love thinking about what, you know, screw would have done had he lived in and how he would have, picked up on other music from around the world, you know, the way that we're connected now, you know, we, we weren't connected that way back then. People didn't have mobile phones like that. We could, you couldn't send a text message in Screw's lifetime. That wasn't something that people did. Most people didn't have mobile phones. You know, we didn't, we didn't have any kind of social media at all, nothing like that. And so, you know, it was just a different era, but I think that, uh, I think that he was gearing up to, to, I think he would have been there. I think he would have, you know, he would have adapted to the to the changes that were going on and it would have been really interesting to hear what he would have done with the the music from around the world that he would have discovered in the process of being connected the way we are now and to wrap up if you could just quickly talk about his influence on subsequent scenes first the scene that came out of houston i'm thinking you know around 2005 with mike jones and paul wallen and 
um, the Swisher House scene, and also Screw's influence in the 2010s on you know lo-fi hip hop and vaporwave and, and all these kind of things. People all around the world picking up on Screw's music. Just tell us a little bit about how his influence has spread since his passing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't think that um, you know you talk about the the kind of Swisher House movement of 2004, 2005. Mike Jones, Paul Wall, Slim Thug, Chameleon Air, that whole scene that broke out. Um, that doesn't happen without Screw. You know that whole that whole scene, that whole North Side scene of Swisher House is influenced by Screw. It doesn't that doesn't mean that those artists wouldn't have been making records and and doing their own thing. I'm sure that you know they're all um, inspired musically and passionate about music. And I think if DJ Screw had never been around, I think they'd all still be making music. They'd just be doing something different. I think all Houston music would sound different if not for DJ Screw. But you know, in a sense, you know, you had this sort of pressure cooker of what was going on in Houston that was building up over the course of years. And, um, you know, in the, in the vacuum that was left in, in screws by screws passing, um, I think you had a lot of people who still wanted to hear, um, that kind of music. They still wanted to hear slowed down music. They wanted to hear slowed down and chopped music and which is something that Swisher House was doing. And, um, you know, you, you have artists that came up that were inspired by Screw and that um, were out in the streets promoting and, and doing their own thing and um, and getting better and better at what they did. And, you know, in Houston in particular, you know, you had uh, you had a, a major distrib- lo- major local production and distribution hub in South Southwest Wholesale, which uh, collapsed in 2003. And that was where a lot of independent artists in Houston got their records manufactured and distributed and and, um, you know, when that happened, it sort of opened up everything for people to sign with the major labels and, um, you know, for local deals to, to have, you know, sort of upstream, you know, possibilities with major labels. So there's really a lot of things happening, you know, over the course of years that built up to that point where when that one song still tipping broke through, which is a song that very much reflects the feeling and the vibe of a screw tape, even though they're not talking about DJ screw, but you know, they're talking about the North side, but they're still talking about Houston and they're talking about the whole, the culture as a whole. Um, but you know, when that happens, you know, we, we, we still, that connectivity that I'm talking about, we still weren't quite there yet. MySpace had just kind of come around. There was no Facebook or anything like that. People, like I said, people, some people had text messages, but we didn't, we weren't connected in the way that we are now. Um, so people didn't really know what was going on in Houston until that one song broke through and then all the cameras sort of swung around and all the lights turned on. They said, okay, Houston, check it out. Who else is there? Well, we got Bun B, we got Chameleon Air, we got K Reno, we got Klondike Cat, we got all these things that have been going on in Houston. Little Flip, you know, not necessarily people who were part of that giant wave, but were kind of swept up in it because there was so much attention on Houston. And um, and I know this because this is my work started right before this. And so I'm kind of seeing this wave building up as I'm working on these projects, you know, 2004, 2005 goes way back. And, um, and you see that all of that happening. So, you know, that, and, and the influence to everybody was DJ screw and the influence that people were talking, were talking about was DJ screw. And so that, I think that introduced a lot of people globally to DJ screw when that happened. And then what do you get you know, a few years later, you get Drake, you get ASAP Rocky, you know, you get space coast perp, you get people who are influenced by, you know, maybe were influenced by that still tipping generation and then kind of retroactively learned more about DJ Screw and what was going on. 
uh, in Houston. And then, like you said, you know, years after that, you start getting witch house and vaporwave and, you know, the things that you could, you could argue are influenced by DJ screw. And, um, then, you know, some years later you get Travis Scott releases Astro world, which has got a heavy, uh, DJ screw influence. So I think it'll, it'll continue to come out in waves. I think, you know, you're going to, you're going to continue to see, you know, generations of talented artists from Houston coming out and, you know, it's almost a rite of passage to, <clears throat> to mention DJ screw and to talk about DJ screw and, and and I think as a Houston artist, you can't help but be influenced by DJ Screw in some way. So I think you're just going to continue to see that in uh, in future years, especially as people become more aware of his story and become more aware of his importance. And 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 the more and more people that you <clears throat> see that are citing his work and talking about his work, I think that'll just cause that much more interest in it. And I think it's you know, as saying this is the guy who took the time to write a book on it, I think it's infinitely fascinating. And um, and I'm looking forward to the to the movie that's going to come out and and, and future documentaries and <clears throat> I just think it's an endless endlessly interesting um, you know range of study and um, and I look forward to the future of it. Never gets Absolutely. old. Absolutely. And Lance, uh, my guest has been Lance Scott Walker. The book is DJ Screw, A Life and Slow Revolution. And yeah, thank you so much for documenting this important Texas musical history. Really love the book and and it's a great guide to. I mean, DJ Screw's work is so there's so much of it and it's, you know, it's always been kind of daunting to me to try to go through the different mixtapes, but the book's really been helpful with that. I've really been enjoying, um, you know, the, the lessons that you've passed down about TJ screws. So thanks so much, Lance. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Follow the letter roll podcast on Twitter at let it roll cast and check out our website at let it roll podcast.com. Monday, Nate welcomes Victor Bacris to discuss the Velvet Underground. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.